You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Psalm 36, we're going to read it together, and uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and study this. Notice to the choir master, just another reminder that this was a psalm that was intended to be used in worship. And it says, it's of David, the servant of the Lord. By the way, it's one of my questions Sunday morning is, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a servant? But we'll talk about that Sunday. So don't let me get ahead of myself. I'm not going to preach my sermon uh, tonight. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Uh, Jeff and I were talking just before uh, the study tonight about how this psalm changes quickly. So he's been talking to the, the wicked uh, in verses 1 through 4. And then, boom, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That's an interesting phrase. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, uh, we're reminded in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would come to your word with open ears, open hearts, or that we'd let your word have its way in our life and that we would leave today changed. We're grateful for the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. And we believe that, and that gives us great excitement in this moment as we study uh, your eternal living Word. So have your way in our midst by the power of the Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, and we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've given you this summary of the Psalms each week. One comes from Dr. Kendall Easley, where he tries to summarize all 150 chapters in one sentence. I think he does a pretty good job. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So whatever Psalm you find yourself reading, you'll see reflections of that theme found in that Psalm. And John Piper 
writes the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important, which again is why we connect with the Psalms at such a deep level because we are emotional beings and we connect with the emotions we see on display in the Psalms. And I've titled tonight Psalm 36, Which Will You Choose? Because this Psalm poses a vital question. Would you rather experience the consequences of sin or the great love of God? Or let me even add a word. Would you rather experience the eternal consequences of sin or the great love of God? Seems like a pretty simple question for us in this room, but it might surprise you that a lot of folks don't have an easy time answering this question. But here's what I appreciate about the Lord. When the Lord calls us to a decision, He gives us all the facts. We're not making a blind decision. That's what the Word of God is about. It tells us very in a very straightforward manner the realities of humanity, the realities of eternity, the realities of our need for salvation. So when somebody chooses to either uh, embrace the Lord or reject the Lord, they have the facts. Now, you remember the game show, um, what was the name of the show? Um, Let's make a deal. Remember, let's make a deal. And they would allow a contestant at some point to choose between door number one or door number two, right? And or three. I don't. I don't remember the show, but uh, one, two, or three. And what made the decision compelling is they did not know what was behind all of the doors, right? So they may pick door number two, and it opens up, and it's a cruise to Hawaii, and everybody cheers. Or they may choose number two and it opens up and it's a pack of crackers, right? I mean, they didn't know what was behind the doors. It was risky in making the decision that they made. Well, here in Psalm 36, David is in a really evangelistic sense, giving us all the information we need to make the right decision. Uh, Psalm 36 really has an evangelistic thrust. David is is really laying some, some facts before people so they will make the right um, decision. So I want to give you three uh, P or two pieces of information that David gives uh, here in this psalm. First of all, he talks about the danger of sin, the danger of sin. He says there in verse one, transgression, which is another word for sin. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. The Bible uses different words for rebellion against God. Transgression, iniquity, just the, the most common word is sin, rebellion. Uh, but all of these words speak of disobeying God, uh, not doing what God has told you to do or failing to do uh, or, or doing something God's told you not to do or not doing something God has told you to do. Sins of omission and sins of commission. And he's speaking here of those who are caught up in sin. And he talks about the danger of sin. And just three things I want you to see here. First of all, sin has an agenda. It says there, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Sin, this is important, originates in our heart. In my time alone with the Lord, I was reading in um, Mark recently, I was reading how Jesus reminded his listeners that 
the evil things we do originate in the heart. There is, without question, evil all around us, but the Bible also tells us there is evil within us. And so we need to make sure that we understand sin originates in our heart. Sin has an agenda. And because we are uh, born to sinful parents who are born to sinful parents who are born to sinful parents, going all the way back to the fall in Adam and Eve, everyone is born with a sin nature. That's why we sin. And our sin nature is opposed to the will and the ways of God. It Rebellion against God just comes naturally, doesn't it? That's why you don't have to teach your children how to manipulate. Right? I mean, it just comes naturally. They just learn at a young age how to manipulate things to get what they want. Because sin originates in our heart. Sin has an agenda. It's trying to find its way out of your heart through your mind and through your actions to uh, bring about your destruction. So sin has an agenda, and sin deceives. Look in verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words uh, of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Sin deceives. So notice here, the person caught up in sin uh, flatters himself, and he thinks, well, my iniquity um, can't be found out. I'll get away with it. I, I, you know, I, I'll figure this out. Uh, sin disease, uh, deceives. And notice the progression here. He flatters himself in verse 2 that in my own eyes, I can't be caught for my sin. Verse 3, he ceases to do good. Look what it says. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. And then in verse 4, he finds himself plotting evil. Look what it says. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So sin deceives. You think, well, I'm, I'm doing this thing, participating in this thing, rebelling against God, but you know, no one is going to find this out. And before long, if you don't deal with that sin, eventually you, you just stop doing good. And then you begin to plot evil and you become an instrument in the hands of the evil one. So sin has an agenda and sin deceives and sin destroys. Sin destroys. Look what it says down in verse 11. Fast forward to verse 11. How, this is how the psalm ends. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. The idea that I can sin and get away with it. That's what David is saying here. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. So I don't want to be controlled by sin in my heart. And I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be influenced by those who are wicked and opposed to God. He says, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. In other words, he's saying, here's the end game when it comes to sin that is not dealt with. It will destroy you to the point where you cannot rise. You will be thrust down, which is a picture of God's judgment against our sin. So sin has an agenda. Sin deceives. Sin destroys. Uh, You've heard it said like this, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin is all about. Sin is not something that you play with. Sin is not something that you revel in. Sin is not something that you take lightly. But unfortunately, many people in our world are dabbling around with, playing with 
sin and living in rebellion against God. And David wants you to know, it does not end well. You may be having your moment of fun, you may be having your moment of pleasure, but it does not end well. Judgment is coming. So he's speaking here of the the deceitful nature of sin and the ultimate destruction that sin brings in our lives. The danger of sin. But then David pivots and he begins to talk about door number two, the delights of God's love. He's talked about the danger of sin. Now he's going to talk about the delights of God's love. He says there in verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. So notice there in verse 5, he mentions steadfast love. Then in verse 7, he mentions steadfast love. In verse 10, he mentions steadfast love. That is the Hebrew word, kesed. It's a beautiful, beautiful, me and Miss Nancy talked about this. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful Hebrew word that can't be translated with one English word. There's just too much to it. It's just, it's just a word that encapsulates so much. It's, it's sort of like um, patient, enduring, eternal, gracious, merciful love. That, that'd be the way that you, that you um, translate this word. It's such a rich, rich word used throughout the scripture. So when you see it, when you see it translated in your English Bible, it's never translated with one word. It's always something like steadfast love or enduring love or something of that nature. I read a, a commentary this week that said this word kessid, uh, steadfast love, is, is love with an oomph to it. I mean, it's, it's really a strong, strong word. And David says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Now he tells us some things about the Lord here. First of all, he tells us God's love is big. God's love is big. Verse 5, how big is God's love? It extends to the heavens. That's a good way of saying it is limitless. Your faithfulness to the clouds. He makes a similar statement over in Ephesians 3. Hold your place, but turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3. You know, when I'm back in my Bible drill days, when I'm when I'm looking for Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know, there's some GEPC. There are some different ways people remember that to you know to, to find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You know, when you're looking for it, um, I heard a new one this this uh, recently, this last month about GEPC, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I want to help you find find your way around God's Word. Here's a new one I heard. You ready? Gentiles eat pork chops. All right, that's I heard it. It works. Try it. You won't be able to forget it. You won't be able to forget it. You will. You will. All right. All right. So Ephesians chapter three. That's the only thing you're going to take away from tonight, isn't it? You don't hear another word I have to say. All right. Ephesians, Ephesians three. Look what it says in verse fourteen. Paul writes, for this reason, oh, I love this passage. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner beings, that Christ may dwell in your hearts 
through faith. So Paul here is praying for the inner man. He's praying that you will be strengthened in the inner man. By the way, how many of you understand God is far more concerned about the inner you than the outer you? This world tells it's all about the outer, right? What we look like, uh, what we achieve, what we accomplish, what we own, what we drive, what we wear. God is far more concerned about the inner man. And it says here that, or Paul's praying that the spirit uh, through power would strengthen the inner being. But he has a reason he's asking for God to strengthen him. Look what it says. That, verse 17, you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now think about what Paul's praying here. He said, I'm praying that you will be strengthened in the inner man so you can more fully comprehend how big God's love is. He said, you don't have what you need in and of yourself to begin to begin to cherish and treasure God's love. So I'm praying that the Spirit will do a work in you that you'll grow in your comprehension of the of the, the bigness of God's love. I love that phrase, that you may know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. Hey, this is the, the love month tomorrow, or tomorrow starts February. Can you believe it? It's Valentine's Day on the 14th, and we're thinking about you go to the stores. There's hearts everywhere and candy everywhere. Can I get a witness? And there's all this, there's, you know, it's love everywhere. Um, well, we need as Christians to understand in a growing way God's that God's love is big. We'll never fully comprehend it. He says in Ephesians, it's, it's beyond understanding completely, but we should be growing in our understanding of God's love. So God's love is big back in Psalm 36. And his character is perfect. Look in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness. So he speaks of his faithfulness that he comes through. Your righteousness, he does the right thing. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. It's firm, unmoving. Your judgments, what you choose to do, how you deal with situations, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. You make decisions to intervene in the affairs of humanity, and you always do the right thing. So he's speaking here of his character being perfect. And if you think about his character, God is faithful, verse 5. That's the, the next blank. God is faithful. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Charles Spurgeon says about God's faithfulness, he never fails, nor forgets, nor falters, nor forfeits his word. To every word of threat or promise, prophecy or covenant, the Lord is exactly adhered. For he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. God is faithful. And then God is righteous, verse 6. He says there, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. So God's love is big and his character is perfect. Now let me tell you why that's a big deal. All right? If God were, were a, a God that had some strong feelings of affection towards you, but he didn't have the character to maintain those feelings of affection, and always act in your life according to his love. In other words, if he was loving, but not faithful, and not just and righteous, then his love could change, couldn't it? The way he interacts with us could change, but he is loving and faithful and righteous. He always does the right 
thing. And when we accept his love, back in your notes, here's what happens. Again, he's being evangelistic here. We experience true delight. Look what it says in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. There's that word kesed again. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, a constant theme throughout the scriptures. God bringing us under his wings to care for us, to provide for us, to protect us. Then he says, those who take refuge in you, those who respond to your steadfast love, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the rivers of your delights. In other words, he's saying when you embrace God's love, when you choose to accept his love for you, you will experience true delight. Now, let me show you something really cool from the scriptures. Look in verse 8. He says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. Everybody see that? That word delights in the Hebrew is the plural of the word Eden. It was the Garden of Eden. It was a place of delight. It was a place where your every need was met. You lived in harmony with the created order. You lived in harmony with the God who created you and created everything. You walked with him. You talked with him. You experienced delight. You experienced paradise in the Garden of Eden. And that's the, the word used here, the river of your delights, the river of your Edens is, is what he is saying here. So here's the, the, the reality for us who accept God's love. The Bible teaches that we, we embrace the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the way we accept His love, by embracing the Son that He sent. For God so loved the world that He, what, gave His only Son, right? We embrace Jesus, believe in Him. That's how we accept the love of God. And in Christ, the Lord begins to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God, perfect harmony, shalom, peace, and they sinned. They did what God told them not to do. They, eat the, they ate the fruit from that tree, sin entered the world. They lived in a fallen creation. All of a sudden, everything changed. Sin messed everything up. And what David is saying here, I believe, is this. If you will embrace the love of God, he will begin to restore Eden in your life. He will, he will begin this process of bringing you back to wholeness, to bringing you back to harmony, to bring you back to, to un, um, uninterrupted fellowship with God. It happens in this life as he changes us, but it culminates when we go to heaven and we are in the Eden of heaven, perfection, paradise with God forever. So when we accept his love, we experience true Delight. They feast on the abundance of your house. Now, look at me for a moment. I think a lot of people, a lot of people, keep the Lord at arm's length because people you know, people you work with, people in your family, people keep the Lord at arm's length because they really believe that God's major agenda for them is to take away their fun. That's what they believe. If, if I become a Christian, people are going to bring out their Bibles. And here come these rules, and here come these commandments, and I'm going to have to deal with some stuff in my life, and I'm, I won't be able to do the things I used to do. And, and they think, God's going to take away my fun. This verse says, if you want real delight in your life, 
if you want to experience what real harmony and, and shalom means, embrace the love of God. And you'll experience a delight that is greater than anything this world has to offer. We experience uh, true delight. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this to be true. Secondly, when we accept His love, life begins to make sense. Life begins to make sense. Look what it says in verse 9. He says, For with you, Lord, is the fountain of life. You, you give us what we need. You're an overflowing fountain just pouring into our, into our life to give us that which we need, abundant life, eternal life. You're a, you're a fountain that never runs dry. And then he says, in your light do we see light. It's a fascinating phrase. In your light do we see light. In other words, when we come into relationship with you, we begin to see through the lenses of your love for us. We, we look through the lenses of your truth for us. And life begins to make sense. Not always easy. Doesn't mean we don't have hard things we deal with and hard things we walk through. But when we begin to look at life through the lenses of the love of God and the truth of God, life begins to make sense. Your past is redeemed. Your present makes sense. Your future is secure. In His light, you see light. You, you begin to make sense of things. C.S. Lewis commented on this when he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Powerful quote. When you walk outside in the morning, you don't look directly into the sun, but you see your vehicle out there in the driveway because the sun is illuminating it. And when you know God, when you've embraced His love, He begins to shine His light on, on this world and on your relationships and on your circumstances. And things begin to make sense because you're looking at them from a biblical perspective. And you know whatever comes in this life, God loves you. And that means a lot. So, God's love is big. His character is perfect. And then, as he thinks about the delights of God's love, we experience a relationship with God. Look what it says in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. See that? Those who know you. Speaking here of relationship. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. So he's saying, we, we, we want to embrace your love and we want to experience your love in an ongoing way because we know you. We have a relationship with you. I can take you, actually, I can't take you there anymore. The sanctuary is gone. But I, can, but I, but I know exactly in the sanctuary where I was sitting when I was a, a high school senior, maybe a freshman in college, and I heard my pastor say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I guess I should have known that. I guess I'd probably maybe even heard that before. But when he made that statement, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it, it was a paradigm-shifting moment for me that, that what God is after is my heart. He wants me to enjoy Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, to, to fellowship with Him. And that's what David's saying. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. May those who know you personally continue to experience your love. And that idea of knowing God, turn over to John 17. John 17. 
This is the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night before he was betrayed and arrested and condemned and betrayed and abandoned. Jesus knew what was coming because it says in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words to his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. So he's saying the, the time of the cross has come. Would you glorify uh, me through this that I may glorify you through this? And he says, you've given him authority over all flesh. Now look at this to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Here's how he, here's how he defines eternal life. Wait, everybody look at it for a minute. How would you define eternal life? Most of us say heaven, right? Heaven, living forever, right? Look how he defines eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here's what it means to be a Christian. When you embrace the love of God through Jesus Christ, placing your faith and trust in Christ alone, Jesus brings you into a relationship with God. He uses different terms for that, like reconciliation or adoption. But he brings you into a relationship with God whereby you receive and experience God's love. And you begin this, this relationship of knowing God. For me, that happened when I was nine years of age. And that relationship of knowing God will never come to an end. It'll transition into eternity, right? But you'll know him forever and ever and ever. It starts when you're saved, and it goes on for all of eternity. But he defines eternal life as knowing God. That's how he defines it. We experience a relationship with God. So David has talked about the danger of sin. We'll call that door number one. And the delights of God's love. We'll call that door Number two, and the question becomes, if someone is listening to this or you're talking to someone or someone's reading Psalm 36, the question comes, would you rather experience the devastating consequences of sin, eternal consequences of sin, or the great love of God? I mean, I choose love, amen? And, and, and for someone to reject Jesus, what they're saying is, I don't want God's love. I want to keep doing my own thing. I want to keep playing around with sin in my life. And you and I know how that ends. It ends badly. And so we need to be like David. We need to be evangelistic, pointing people to the love of God, letting people know that God loves them and his love is available if they will but accept it. God's love is unconditional because over in Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating his love. His love is unconditional. You have to earn it. You just have to accept it. It is available. We need to point people to his love. And so David gets that point across strongly in Psalm 36. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.